Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I positively encourage bad manners. Not only do I ask my guests to talk with their mouths full, but occasionally I tease out topics some might consider unsuitable for the dining table. Oh yes, living life on the edge. Today I chat to someone who is equally at home in a muddy field as she is at an award ceremony in a gown. Presenting everything from Glastonbury coverage to the BAFTAs, she's had Radio 1 shows, presented Top of the Pops and has a podcast called Soundtracking, where she talks to filmmakers about musical influences in their work. My guest is the delightful DJ and broadcaster Edith Bowman. I mean doing small talk at the best times is hard. Doing small talk with Robert De Niro was like what do you say? So then I, I was like oh I'll just tell him how much I embarrassed myself with Martin Scorsese. I uh, just kind of nodded. Uh, with the t- turned down mouth. Yeah. Hello there, Edith Bowman. I don't think we've ever met, have we? No, we've definitely Which... been in the same room at various points over the years, but never been officially introduced or, or had the pleasure of, of chatting. So nice to meet you. Obviously, because you're in Gloucestershire and I'm in London, couldn't do the normal takeaway thing. So what I've done is sent, I sent you a meal kit from a, a great American barbecue place called Smokestack. Oh my lord! It's—I mean, <laughs> even just the packaging is impressive. It, it is pretty impressive. So this place, Smokestack, does uh, a lot of American barbecue. They do eighteen-hour beef brisket, and they do fifteen-hour pork belly ribs and slaw and beetroot stuff. And I loved it when I went. And David Card, who I said, could you possibly? And he went, yes, of course. So he has dispatched boxes in both our directions with a few cooking instructions, which I, I got I got a lovely emergency email from you about an hour ago going, which barbecue sauce? <laughs> Is it the honey one or the house one? I can't get it wrong. Uh, yeah. So have you done the beetroot and goat's cheese and hazelnut thing to begin? I have it here. Let's have a look. They're beautiful. So, listen, the key to this is we do have lunch, even though it's in the slightly odd circumstances of a Zoom. Um, so I'm going to invite you to start your starter, and then I'll just bowl questions at you, and you have to eat with your, talk with your mouthful, which I'm sure is counterintuitive to a broadcaster of your experience. Um, <laughs> there have been times. Famously, you grew up pretty much in a hotel in Asdrother in, um, in Scotland. Yeah. It does seem a very long distance from the world you now occupy that childhood sometimes spending weekends with your grandparents so they could get on with running the hotel until you then went to work in the hotel Mm. was there any sort of hint of a of a media world in your family there was always music around the hotel whether that was you know bands playing at weddings we'd have this massive week of celebration over Hogmanay 
where we'd have afternoon jazz bands playing, you know, while people are tea and cakes and stuff or music playing, little acoustic nights going on in the bar. So there was always music. But my dad's got this amazing footage of me when I was seven years old when we were on holiday. And on this one holiday, I remember my mum went up on the back of a a speedboat, you know, one of those kind of parachutes. And my dad had a city camera. My dad always loved a bit of gadgetry. And he was filming mum and I had the microphone. Now I was only seven and uh, I'm singing, I sing the news at 10 theme tune. And then like today, there's a lady up in a parachute. I think she's enjoying herself. And my dad kind of jokes about the fact that, you know, he kind of knew then that I was going to be talking about people and two people about whatever that may be. So that was possibly your first broadcasting experience. If someone said to me, you know, describe Edith Bowman's work, I'd say she's a super fan. She's an absolute fan of the things that she talks about and interviews people about. For the tape, I will say that Edith is nodding. Um, That's really kind of you to say, to be honest, because that's all I ever kind of want to come across as because I I get a little bit kind of uncomfortable and get a twitchy eye when people describe me as a critic because I'm not at all. I always come at things of of being a fan. You know, I want to, I want a blank canvas and I want to make my own opinions about things. The music thing was, was my mum. It was, she took me to my first concert when I was seven years old to see Rod Stewart at Ibrox Stadium. She was a massive, still is massive Rod fan. Have you ever interviewed Rod? Yes. You have to tell me, but I want that from both sides. So you told him that he was your first gig. Yeah, told him it was my first gig. And then Another time that we went to see him, I mean, it must have been the next year because I wasn't much older. We parked at this hotel because we knew it was easy to then just jump in a cab to the to the venue. And then we came back to get a car and we saw this big bus and mum suddenly realised that Rod was staying at the hotel. Oh my God. Uh-huh. So then we waited outside for about half an hour with our programme and he came out. And mum kind of, she didn't push me, but she sort of ushered me towards him. She said, go and get him to sign your programme. So I kind of like bundled my way forward. This security guard kind of shunted me out the way, at which point Rod Stewart pushed him out the way and said, for God's sake, man, it's only a kid, and pulled me in and signed my programme. Did, did you recall this with him yes. when you interviewed him? Yeah. And how nuts did your mum go when you said, by the way, uh, this week I'm interviewing Rod Stewart? I took her with me. <laughs> You took your mum with you to to. the interview. (laughs) But yeah, she was beside herself. It's one of the perks of the job, actually, of like being able to take, you know, my family or friends to things that, you know, we probably wouldn't have had the chance to do. Like my brother is the biggest Oasis fan in the world. And there's been maybe four or five occasions where I've, he's met Liam through, you know, coming to festivals with me and stuff. And I mean, he's got this picture of him with Liam Gallagher that he's had you know, like you can take pictures and have them painted onto canvas. <laughs> he's he's yes, had yes. that done. Mum's okay. got her framed picture with Rod. The question I have to ask is, what have you got on your walls? In my office, my pride of place picture on my um, is me, Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Your first job, as I understand it, was reading the news on MTV. How did you get it? Just before I finished uh, uni, I used my last student grant to go and do a presenter training course, which uh, the reason I did it was because at the end of it, you got a showreel. I went, packed my bags, went to London, stayed with friends of ours down there for the first six months. 
Thank you, Val and Ken. And then whilst I was there, I was sending it out to everybody. My mum still got the folder of kind of rejection letters where a lot of them say, uh, maybe you could have some elocution lessons. Are you serious? Mm. Because heaven forfend, anybody should have a Scottish accent. And so I was like, I'm not changing my accent because it's me. It's who I am. Um, and then thankfully it worked in my favour because Christine Bohr, who was uh, brought on board to launch MTV UK, and she wanted to represent the UK with her choice of, you know, VJs, as we were called. I mean, not only great accents, but great women. So there was June Sarpong, myself, Kat Dealey, Donna Ayer, Sarah Cox. And we all started at MTV together. You know, that was our ticket. That was our introduction. And and it was amazing. I couldn't believe someone was celebrating my kind of, my voice, really. It's an amazing collection of women when you consider where they've all gone on to. I know that Kat remained a, a, remains a strong friend of yours and you, you ended up doing a travel series yeah. together purely out of drunkenness and <laughs> yeah. thinking it would be a good idea if you could get someone to commission. And they did. <laughs> I think it's a brilliant story. <laughs> and they did. When you started on MTV, how old were you? Uh, 22, 21, 22. The music industry, you know, it can be quite full on, quite druggy. Yeah. A, a lot of booze. Was it a challenge not to get dragged in or did you just go for it did you burn the many candles at all their various ends i burned the candles um to an extent when i was little i had epilepsy and so i i had um when i was six months old i had my first seizure and so i was on medication up until i was about nine and i then i was weaned off it you know and, and touch wood been fine since it's almost been my kind of safety, safety uh, latch in the well, I've a, kind a, of a sense that there might be some form of mortality knocking around. Well, just well, kind of like but... don't go too mental. I've always been slightly cautious and scared about about drugs and things like that because because of that sort of side of things. But I, I mean, there was a time where there's definitely a space and time where I have very little memory of, you know, Kat and I in particularly, we just had the best time and I drank a lot of Jack Daniels. And then weirdly, sort of once I had my first kid, uh, Rudy, so he's 12, 13, a couple of months, kind of really changed how I felt in my relationship with alcohol. it does that, doesn't it? Because it had to. There is nothing worse than... uh doing the five o'clock, 5.30 wake up with a baby with a hangover. Oh my God. And we've all done it. Yeah. Uh, how are you doing on your starter? It's lovely. When you're ready, move on mm. to your main. Not that I want to rush you through this. No, no, it's good. Have you gone for both the uh, the brisket and the pork so or have you I've just done one? So I've got a bit of brisket just now. I thought I'd have a bit of that first. And then I've got the, the pork belly uh, just standing by kind of winking at me pretty much they work rather well oh my god so tender it's... i mean i tried to mm. cut the brisket and it literally just kind of melted onto the chopping board it's so delicious it really is mm. it's really really good oh yeah it has to be said you married uh, your your other half is in the editors yeah that kind of cements your role in the music business doesn't it <laughs> did, did, have, you, have you been on tour with the editors yeah i loved go i love going on tour and the boy we take the kids on tour as well it's it is i've got to say I mean, that was one of the last things that we did, actually, before lockdown. We went out to, the boys and I got, got on a plane to Madrid and met Tom in Madrid and went on the bus with him for three days uh, and went, we did Madrid, Barcelona and might have been Seville, actually. And it's been, that's been the most amazing thing to do with them 
in terms of introducing them to different countries, different cultures, different foods, all that kind of thing as well. It's been absolutely wonderful because you have kids on the tour bus. They're up early. You've got to get them off there before they wake everybody else up. So it kind of forced us to get out and explore and go and see things. But I loved going on tour. I did America, did the UK, did Europe. Yeah, so good. And would you be on the edge of the stage every night? I'd be somewhere in the venue. Yeah, I'd always have... Photography's always been a bit of a, a hobby of mine, so I've I've always got my camera with me. So I'd be I'd be running around either in the sound at the sound desk out front taking pictures, or I, I like being in the crowd. It's so different. The, the sound side of stage is rubbish. Yes, you have to be out front to kind of feel that energy and feel that atmosphere. I had such a weird experience this week. So I was interviewing the composer Emil Maris who's done this beautiful film called Minari it's a Korean film it's beautiful uh, it's been nominated for loads of great things so far this year and so I had some time with Emil for um, my podcast soundtracking and so we're chatting away having a lovely time he's he's created something really quite special and then I say goodbye and like be great to keep in touch and you know when you can you've got to come across and do a live performance of the score at the Barbican you know with the film uh, and then his publicist, Lana, emailed me straight away going, I can't believe he didn't mention it. I'm like, what? Oh, God, what is it? If it's okay, she was like, he was on tour with editors back in 2010 uh, in his band, The Dig. And he was desperate to tell you, but he was also really shy about telling you. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I was like, please give him my email address so he can. So then he did. And so, yeah, such a small world. It is a small world. Now, you've, you've mentioned soundtracking, which I've been listening to for the past week. If you haven't listened to it, you should. Oh, thank you. Because it's an amazing, it's an amazing podcast. I, I, first of all, the in, impulse to launch it. So you've had a career where you've worked on Radio 2, 5, 6, 1. You presented Tea in the Park. You've been part of the Glastonbury presentation team. You've done all this big stuff. And then you decide to launch your own podcast, relatively early compared to a lot of us Johnny come late is like me who are just basically leaping on your coattails <laughs> what was it why why did you want to do this because I couldn't I, uh, because I wasn't able to get a regular slot on a traditional radio station I was doing a sort of sporadic slot on six music uh, which was in one of those slots that's seasonal wasn't that infuriating I, you it was know, frustrating you, you, yeah, you, you've—I don't want to say paid your dues or all of that, but you've—you've you've done it. You're a very, very experienced, accomplished broadcaster, and the idea that you don't have that—that that slot must must have been frustrating. It was absolutely frustrating, and it's—it's it's also you have to yeah, accept sure. that not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to like what you do. That's fine. That's their choice. You can't. Same in a relationship. You can't make someone change their mind and stuff. But you, I also, you can't create a slot that's not there sort of thing. So I, you know, I got it, but it was infuriating. And so Ben and I were like, well, why don't we do it ourselves? Why don't we try and see? And I just worked with Adam Buxton um, at Six Music. I'd worked with Adam for six months. We'd kind of, we were supposed to cover for six weeks on this show and we ended up doing six months together. And it was an amazing learning experience. Because Adam, Adam's, you know, he's talking about people who are there at the start. He was very much there well yes he really was he was a great kind of champion in terms of 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 getting started and and so I reached out to the film companies was like look I'm thinking of launching a show we're going to call it soundtrack and where I speak to film creatives about their relationship with music 
And amazingly, Disney gave me some time with John Favreau, who was um, launching Jungle Book, his live action version of Jungle Book at the time. And so once we kind of got that in the bag, it was it, it made things slightly easier in terms of we could then go to people go, look, we've got John Favreau. We never, ever intended that it would be something that we would be able to do every week which we have done since August 2016, bar two weeks. Which is extraordinary. So proud of it. You mentioned your picture, your prized picture of you and uh, Scorsese and De Niro. I think you were once asked, you know, who would you like to say sorry to and said it was Scorsese because you may have been... What happened? (laughs) You tell this story. So it was a couple of years ago, the whole kind of Irishman tour rolled into town and, um, you know, they were all here promoting the film and it was around um, BAFTA time as well, you know, kind of for your considerations, all those Q&As. And I was asked to host the premiere, which I did, which was incredible. And then I got asked to host the Q&A with them all. So it was, I mean, it was crazy. It was, you know, Harvey Keitel, Al Pacino, Sandy Powell, the costume designer, Emma Koskoff, the producer, Steve, the writer, uh, De Niro, Scorsese. And they put Scorsese right next to me. He's, he's very warm. He's very kind of open. He's not one of those people that you feel scared to talk to. He, he, was, he was really generous. And so I kept doing this thing where I kept like, because we were so close, because there were so many of us on this small stage. I mean, that's an enormous Q&A panel. It's not ideal yeah. to do a Q&A with seven people and, or whatever it yeah, was. Yeah, it was crazy. And so I just kept doing this thing where we were chatting and then he would say something and I would, it would be funny. And so I'd do that thing, that familiar thing, like tapping him on the shoulder going, oh, Marty, stop it. And so I just like hadn't <laughs> realised how much I'd done it through the course of the... The Q&A, I'm like, God, the poor man's going to have like a bruise on his shoulder, if nothing else. Did you say anything to him at the end or scurry off no. hoping never to well, broach I mean, the subject of, the, of your tactile engagement with him? Well, they were kind of swept off in a kind of wind of A-list celebrity-ness. And, um, and then I, I didn't really get a chance to, to, to apologise to him, but I, Emma, the producer, who I then spoke to a couple of weeks later for the podcast because she's an extraordinary woman because she she's worked with Martin Scorsese for a number of years and then she worked with Todd Phillips on The Joker. So she had these two films at the same time kind of, you know, battling it out for awards. But, and I said, I'm so, so sorry. Please, can you pass on my apologies to Mr. Scorsese? She was like, oh, don't be daft. She's like, he's, he's, he loves it. You know, he's got, he's got granddaughters who are about your age. So he, you know, he feels... He feels really comfortable with, with someone who knows what they're talking about, but being kind of, you know, friendly with him. I was like, oh God, it's a kind of maybe a bit too much. And then I told the story to Robert De Niro as well. And it's like, I had a, it was almost like I, I carried a watermelon moment from, you know, Dirty Dancing. I, I got asked uh, about a month down the line, Robert De Niro flew into London for one night to host, to do a Q&A for the Irishman. He was so passionate about this film. And they asked me if I would host it. I was like, are you kidding? Of course. So we're in this weird little corridor waiting to go on. And I don't, what, that, that kind of weird, small, I mean, doing small talk at the best times is hard. But doing small talk with Robert De Niro was like, what do you say? So then I, I was like, oh, I'll just tell him how much I embarrassed myself with Martin Scorsese, where he was actually sat next to him. Uh, he was just, it just kind of nodded like that, did that kind of... <laughs> De Niro kind uh, of... With the t- turned down mouth. Yeah. 
De Niro nod. Yeah. Which you're doing very well to me now. (laughs) The producer of today's fine podcast, Selena, who who you know Mm. and have worked with, told me a great story, which was in 2015, you both went to interview Keanu Reeves and told him that he really ought to do a sequel or a third along the way to Bill and Ted. He was asking you if it was really a good idea. Is that correct? That is correct. And people can hear it somewhere, I imagine. Um, Yeah, I kind of, I just have such a happy experience of Bill and Ted. And it's one of those things where you wonder whether he's embarrassed to, at the time, you kind of couldn't couldn't quite gauge whether it's something that he was really proud of or he didn't want to talk about, he did. We weren't told we couldn't ask him about it. So it was like, well, let's, I love Bill and Ted. I'd love to see, where are they now? You know, what are they doing now? Um, you know, bodacious, all that stuff. And so I was like, I'm going to ask him. And yeah, and that was before it was so, announced that they were doing, doing the new well, film. I so I think say, Selena think and I and are the reason I... that there was the sequel to, yeah, I think it's our fault. Bogus yeah. Journey. It's your fault. Well, it's pretty, I, have, I have a quick Keanu Reeves story. When I was on the one show, which I no longer am, um, we'd have ridiculous big names would fly in and, they, and you could always measure them out by the size of their entourage. So Will Smith was seven four by fours, 28 no. people taking over the green. I mean, it was insane, absolutely insane. Whereas Keanu Reeves turned up in a car by himself. There was nobody. Got out of the car, said, uh, where do I go? Yeah. Walked into makeup, took one look at me and went, hey man, it's you. Because he'd become a, big fan of the cooking show I'd done in LA. Amazing. <laughs> that was, that's, that's my uh, absolute joyous, you know, if Keanu Reeves story. I've had that with the most unexpected people at Leonardo DiCaprio. Where oh, really? You'd expect if anybody's going to turn up with a massive entourage, it's going to be Leo. Yeah. Um, no. He came into the room, sat down on his own, didn't have anybody there keeping time. And, and the other thing is that he engaged and that he wanted to have a conversation. He wasn't there to just answer the questions. And I really remember that about him. And I was really grateful for that as well, because it's quite hard sometimes to to snap people out of that kind of junket. They're in those rooms for hours on end and they're being asked the same questions and they have, they've prepared loads of answers to the questions as well. You know, they've, they've done a couple of days training on what could be the potential questions being asked. And that's kind of what I like about with soundtracking is that I, I'm not asking the same questions because I'm not interested in that line of questioning. I want to talk about music. I want to take, talk about the creativity. I love how I can see it almost when I say, oh, if no one's told them in advance and I go, so we're going to talk about music, their shoulders almost drop. You get a different interview, you get a more truthful interview and they can be themselves. But Leo was extraordinary. I couldn't believe it. On that note, I am going to suggest a quick break while I run downstairs. You, you've been much more together about this. I'm going to stick mine. Um, I do have a microwave and I'm going to stick mine in the microwave. But so mine's in the oven and I need to just go and sort it out. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Okay. Oh, pretty. My favourite bit. What, the sticky toffee mm. pudding loaf? Are you big on a pudding? Love a sticky toffee pudding. I think we say thank you again to Smokestack for this. Thank you so much. You've said you're not a film critic um, and you seem to delight in me su- suggesting you're a super fan. But 
Edith, I have to ask you, there must be things you hate. There must be films you sat in and thought, this is pants. There are films that I don't particularly like. Hate's quite a... It's a strong word. It is a strong word. And and I don't know, I'm, I'm, that, I'm that annoying to a lot of people person who tries to see the glass half full. So I always kind of try and go into things with, you know, kind of with no clouded judgment, really, which can be hard a lot of the time, you know, because of social media and research and stuff that I already know about the film or the, the cast and things like that. And I sometimes think that that's the thing with film in terms of so there are some films that are made for specific audiences. And if you're not that audience, you need to watch it with that audience. Like I remember I was covering for um, Simon Mayo and Carmode and Mayo once and uh, we were reviewing one of the Fast and Furious films. Now, to be honest, I kind of clocked out after the third film. I was like, do we need any more? But um, I think it was like number seven. And so I was like, OK, right. So I remember phoning my friend Nathan and who I knew was well into it. I was like, Nate, can you can we go and see Fast and Furious? There's a late night screening at the View on Finchley Road. Let's go and watch it there. So we went. It was like a half eleven screening. And it was rammed with proper Fast and Furious fans. You know, they were had their mobile phones out, they were like not filming the film, but like taking selfies, getting into it and whooping and and I walked out the film kind of going, that was awesome. And it was a combination, <laughs> I think, of the whole event of it, really, and being in that environment with those fans where you're kind of like, it's, it was really infectious. There's a famous moment when you were sitting in for Commodore Mayor with Robbie Collins yeah. and you sort of had a row oh, yeah. over Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. One of you hated it, one of you liked it. I which, loved it. He hated it. Oh, he's wrong. Isn't he? I think it's a fabulous Isn't film. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched yeah, it with my 12-year-old as well, and it was the most brilliant historical discussion piece to then go and talk about the Holocaust and the personal aftermath of, of that in World War II. You know, and I think that coming in through the eyes of a child into that world, it was so clever. I almost feel like the defender when I'm on that show as well. You know, even if the film's not that great, I kind of feel like I've got to be the kind of, I've got to be the other side if it's being panned by someone. Now, listen, one of the other things I want to talk to you about before I let you let you get on with your life as lunch comes to an end. You've been presenting the podcast tied to The Crown, yeah. uh, the, the Netflix series. Now, we are talking, at the exact moment we're talking, there is still an enormous amount of fallout from the mm. Meghan and Harry interview with Oprah. Um, so if anybody who wants to can work out when we're talking. I don't know if you saw the interview, but you must have been following some of the coverage. It's pure Crown, isn't it? It's that drama being worked out again in real life. With doing the Crown podcast, I spend a lot of time with a lot of the people behind the scenes. So Peter Morgan, who writes it, Annie Salzberger, who's the head of research, the producers, the directors. But obviously it's Peter's uh, creative interpretation of that world. But the thing that he always says is that when he's writing it, everything has to come back to the crown. Everything has to come back to the queen. Everything that Harry said with regards to, you know, him being trapped and uh, and and all those all the other things, duty is is the first and foremost. The thing that's the most upsetting about the whole thing is is the race side of things and the idea that someone would be made to feel that way. You know, even if you take race out of the equation, 
the replaying of the story of Diana is quite extraordinary. When you've been doing The Crown and talking to Peter, is he prepared to show his workings in the margins? I've spoken to him about it and he's very conscious about the responsibility that he feels to Harry and William with this programme moving forward because that what they've been through already has just been you know, excruciating for, for two young young boys and young men to go through. And he feels like he has a sense of duty to them. Now, has he given any indication whether that means that Harry and William will be removed from the narrative or is he just being I don't think very, they can be. I don't think they can be. I think that, um, you know, it's interesting that he's decided to do two last seasons as opposed to it was only supposed to be one more. And then he announced before the last season aired that there was going to be two more. I think he said in the podcast, you know, he knows where it, he knows where it needs to end, um, and it's not coming up to present day. It's not anywhere near that. That's one of the things that I always find so sad about it. None of them had their mums and dads around. I know it's bizarre. Isn't it's it? really odd. You know, it's, I remember in one of those scenes from the last season, Olivia Coleman, you know, as the queen, when when they were having a conversation around the table about Diana insisting on taking William on this Australian tour, and she said, "Oh, you know, Philip and I." We're away for five months sort of thing. And it's kind of like as if that, that was that was kind of all right. And everybody worked out fine, didn't they? <laughs> Look, it, it has been brilliant sharing lunch you with you. Too. I'm really grateful for you taking the time. It's been lovely. Thank you for staying in for lunch with me. Oh, please, I hope we can do it in person at some point in the future. Oh, yeah. No, that would be good, wouldn't it? Myself and the wonderful Edith Bowman feasted on a smokestack at home DIY kit, including salt-baked uh, beetroot, goat's cheese and hazelnut, slow-cooked brisket and pork belly and sticky toffee pudding. Uh, smokestack is in London, Shoreditch. Please do go and look them up. It's fabulous. Both Soundtracking and The Crown are available wherever you get your podcasts. And whilst you're there, do dive into the Out to Lunch archive. There is so much to enjoy. Rate us, give us five stars, comment on your favourite Out to Lunch episode and follow us to receive a fresh helping as soon as it is ready. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Regenberg. The recording and mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. Jemima Rathbone was assistant producer. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time is the Scottish stand-up comedian and author who told Donald Trump exactly what she thought of him and it wasn't pretty. It's Janie Godley. They were not prepared for a comedian. So they kept saying things like, you can't have that word. And I'm like, what about unt? And they were debating the word. And I'm like, guys, I'm fucking joking. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put my hand over the sea. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.